Hello and welcome to episode 186 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia, Ben Olson. Ben, what's new? What is new? The weather is super nice and I'm uh, overwhelmingly uh, slammed with work as the March <laughs> LSAT fast approaches. Like Today I was looking at my schedule and I think there's 15 minutes between each random thing that I have scheduled. All the way until oh, 9.30. It's just, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. Wednesdays are my long days, too. I have a bunch of, I have the podcast and a bunch of meetings and um, my class tonight. It's busy. I've spent the last two days just writing um, straight. I think I wrote more in the last two days than I've written in the last, like, two years, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've not, not combined, but just writing explanations for the demon. Um Shout out to uh, demon user Luke C, who sent me like 30 requests for logical reasoning explanations. <laughs> <laughs> I got back to Luke. Luke's in India, Ben, yeah. uh, using the LSAT demon. I got back to Luke and I said, hey, listen, man, um, I appreciate all these writing prompts. Um, I'm going to get to them when I get to them. Um, my policy was to, to uh, anyone who submitted one or two was getting bumped to the list ahead of all of Luke's requests. But eventually, uh, eventually I did get to Luke's request yesterday and got myself back to inbox zero. So I was feeling pretty proud. That's impressive. Yeah. He sent in uh, a lot, like 20, yeah. right. Or something well, like that. I've been, so. Yeah. Or more. I've been getting fired up, um, about it. You know, it feels good like to be, I, I just do it slightly differently, you know, than I used to write them six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about the test differently now. So it's fun to play with these new toys. I have one thing to say about doing all these uh, logical reasoning questions from prep test five, you know, that I've never seen before. Yeah. Uh, um, dude, they're exactly the same. The LSAT hasn't changed <laughs> for shit. That yeah. has not changed at all. The logical yeah. reasoning, those old logical reasoning questions are just exactly like the logical reasoning questions of today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, trust me, I've, I've seen all of them, you know, or now I have, I'm starting to anyway, see all these old ones and they're just, they, they just feel exactly like prep test 86. There's like no difference. So the concepts are the same, right? Accept the premises is true. And then tell me why the conclusion is not something that has to be true. Given what was yeah. said. And the question types aren't any different either. I mean, it's just like the same old must be true and like strategy, you know, or reasoning or whatever. Um, Main conclusion questions, assumption questions, strength and weaken questions, explanation or paradox questions. They're all, it's all the same. It's just the test hasn't changed. Um, Today on the show, we have an interesting uh, guest, Craig Conover. Uh, You might know him from Bravo Television's Southern Charm. Craig is a, uh, well, I guess he's a renaissance man, isn't he, Ben? (laughs) He is, yeah. I I was trying to pin down exactly what he's going to be doing with his life. It sounds like he's starting a foundation for bullied kids. He's making pillows. Um, He's a pro boner attorney, an actor. Uh, what else is he? <laughs> He's got a lot going on. He's a really interesting, uh, interesting dude. And it, yeah, it seems like he's just got all the irons in the fire at once. Um, so we'll see what sticks. But we'll have that interview uh, in the second part of the show. Uh, we're going to do an LSAT fundamental about reading comprehension question strategy. We'll dig into RC one more time. That's probably the 
I don't know, probably won't do any more RC fundamentals after that, will we, Ben? There's just not that much to say about reading comprehension, is there? No, no. Like, you can practice it, but theory-wise, I just don't have that much to say. Um, but it'll be fun to get back into that and start talking about uh, RC question types. Okay, great. The show's going to come out on uh, April Fool's Day, um, Monday, April 1st. You got any uh, pranks to plan, anybody, Ben? Um, actually, I'm glad that you asked that because I was intending to do some pranks on my kids, but, uh, forgot with all the chaos or not chaos, all the scheduled events in my life. But now I'm going to add that to my to-do list and make sure that they get thoroughly joked. I think you should get an air horn and just go into their room at like three in the morning and blast it and go... April Fools. <laughs> that that would be funny if I were able to wake myself up first of all. <laughs> uh, you know the thing is, is that- it would probably affect me more than them. I'd be like groggy, and they'd be like, "Oh, this is so funny, ha ha ha!" You know, like they're kids, so they like this kind of stuff. <laughs> I'd be like, "Yeah, now I can't go back to sleep." Yeah, that would be a prank on yourself. <laughs> Uh, Ben, I'm looking forward to seeing you at UVA uh, coming up in April, April 14th. We're going to be at UVA at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can go to Thinking LSAT Instagram or thinkinglsat.com and uh, RSVP for that event, please, so that we can get a head count uh, ahead of time. We're going to be talking about the changes, Ben, to the digital LSAT. Yeah. And everything else and how to get into law school, really. Yeah, totally. Um, April 23rd, I'll be at Seattle University around noon. Again, please RSVP for that so we know who to uh, count on. You can email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. If you do that, send us a selfie so we can um, use it with the question or comment or whatever you send in. Um, Just a reminder, you can listen to the show a million different ways. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, thinkinglsat.com. And please leave us a review wherever you find us. Um, hit the five stars, write a few words. We really appreciate it. It, uh, it really does help people find us when you leave us a review. Yeah. What's been happening uh, with the demon, Ben? Any updates? Yeah. The main thing that we've been trying to work through is uh, make it easier to review timed sections when you're done, especially for reading comp and games. Uh, we're almost there. The thing that people will probably notice most is Apple users have had some trouble with logical reasoning questions recently. Um, The demon kindly resubmitted your answer and marked it as wrong uh, for some users, but we figured that out and um, that should be fixed. So sounds good. LSATdemon.com. If you want to do a free trial, I just continue to get nothing but good feedback from my students who are using it. Ben, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It seems like the, just the future for LSAT prep. Yeah. Well, I would say the biggest, uh, feedback that I get or the most common comment is I love the demon because I can do it anywhere. And we talked about this last time on the show, but it was mentioned again just yesterday. I don't know why people talk about the doctor's office. Maybe people are always going to the doctor these days, but I can do it in the doctor's office and while I'm waiting for the doctor. I guess the doctor makes a lot of people wait. And uh, anyways, for some reason, it's affecting a disproportionate number of our users. 
in that way. Yeah. No, I've heard, but it's not, it's not just the doctor either. It's like I got to class 10 minutes early and I'm sitting there waiting for the professor, you know, or, um, I'm on a break in my LSAT class and I'm bored or I'm just sitting there, you know, like I, I look around my classes and I'll see somebody doing like a question on the demon. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> good. You know, we're, we're working, we're, we're making progress. Yeah. Someone the other day mentioned that they did it while they were relaxing on the beach. I don't, you know, whatever, if you want to do it there. <laughs> As we were talking about last, last week, um, you can't literally do it anywhere, but you can do it lots of places including, you know, Luke in some village. And he said he described it as very rural India. Mm. And, and he's, you know, um, cranking away. He, he's got an internet connection and he's cranking away questions on the demon. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to point out this. I, I don't think everybody's familiar with the jump to explanations tool in the demon, Ben. I okay. think people mm -hmm. miss that. I found my students in, in my live classes, like they don't even know that's a possibility. Okay. Um, on the left-hand navigation of the demon, there's a link to, uh, what does it say? Does it say jump to explanations or it says I explanations exactly what it right now? It says Just, explanations beta, although the beta can probably be removed because I think we've fixed all the issues with it. Yeah. If you click explanations, um, you'll see a row of numbers on your screen, uh, going down the left-hand side and those are prep test numbers. And if you click the prep test number, you can then browse for uh, all the explanations in that prep test. And so if you do any questions outside of the demon in your LSAT class, or if you just do a section or something outside the demon, you can then still use the demon to get explanations. So that's a pretty valuable feature, I think, that people need to know about. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That just reminded me that we now get most of our feedback through the Slack group. So if you haven't... Um been invited to join the Slack group and you're a demon user or a former, former demon user uh, and you want to join, um, there's, <laughs> there's hundreds of people in there actually already, but it's, a, it's just the perfect place for us to get feedback on what is working or not working for you. Uh, we get feature suggestions there all the time, and then we can keep you updated there uh, when things get fixed instantaneously. Also, um, if you haven't heard about it yet, you can go to preview.lsatdemon.com as opposed to just lsatdemon.com to test out the latest version of the site before it goes live. Um, so sometimes people go there when they have bugs because they can get the more recent version. But in any case, email us at help at thinkinglsat.com if you're not in the Slack group and want to join. Uh, people are also tossing around uh, LSAT and admissions help in some of the channels there, uh, kind of like the Facebook group, but it's uh, focused on demon users. Beautiful. Um, and Max is still kicking ass on that. He is. Yep. He keeps people Amazing. updated. He's uh, incorporating their suggestions into the developer list, which, by the way, is extraordinarily long. So um, we're trying to continue <laughs> um, develop the site as quickly as possible. At the same time, we are hyper focused on making the timed test feature reflect what the digital LSAT will look like in July and in September. Uh, so that you have a platform to practice that digital format on. And we want to make it run smoothly and be ready for that in May. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah, I mean, by the end of this year, I'm thinking we're going to ha just have all of our students in all of our classes just only using the demon. Is that right, Ben? 
That's exactly right. I mean, the test is going to be on a Microsoft Go tablet. The daemon works on that as well as a laptop and things like that. So you just need a computer. But basically, the LSAT's going digital. So people are going to want to practice digitally. I think that makes yeah. the most sense. Doesn't probably have to be on a tablet, but if you have if you have a tablet around, um, you ought to be able to run the daemon on it, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, some tablets don't work yet. We are <laughs> um, focused on making it work in Chrome for everybody first, but um, that's exactly what we're trying to make happen by May. And there's a lot of moving pieces, but we are definitely on track. We will hit that and continue to make it a place where you can study official LSATs in the new testing environment. Amazing. Um, pearls versus turds, Ben. Hmm. Let's uh, first, we need uh, to call out to listeners. We, uh, we need more potential pearls or turds. So when you hear uh, someone popping off with some LSAT wisdom, could be uh, an LSAT tutor, could be somebody on some forums online saying, hey, here's how you have to do it. Could be something you read in a book, could be one of your friends. When you hear somebody giving LSAT advice and you uh, aren't sure whether it's a pearl or a turd, uh, please email it to help at thinkinglsat.com and get it on the list for um, Ben and I to chime in on. Um, Currently, pearls versus turds, we have found one pearl, uh, 12 turds, and four ties. Yeah. Here's an idea from a listener, Ben. Mm -hmm. Students should allocate an hour of review for each section they take. The listener goes on, I didn't hear this from any particular study source. I just found it to be effective when I first started studying and I hope others do as well. What do you think about that, Ben? An hour of review for each section you take. Well, I actually have uh, mixed feelings, so I have a sense that this is going to be a tie. But the pros to this advice is that I think that most people take a time section and they don't review it as thoroughly as they should have. Uh, if you're not doing well in the timed section and you're getting several questions wrong and you're not getting to a lot of questions, then... Uh, you're going to need to spend an hour going over the questions that you missed and the questions that you weren't sure about and making sense of them. Um, even when people do go over questions, they don't take enough time to figure out why the answer they chose was concretely wrong, not just worse. So I like this idea of saying, hey, look, plan on spending an hour so that people don't skimp, skimp on review. My only hesitation is that, uh, well, I have two hesitations. One, in some cases, um, you may not need an hour, especially uh, as you continue to do better on these time sections. At the same time, uh, if you are doing better and you know you don't need that time, then this tip is not going to hurt you. <laughs> You're going to realize that and move on. Um, right. And the other, th But the other thing, which I do think could affect most uh, listeners or most uh, students, is that if taking a time section and then reviewing it for an hour is for some reason uh, overwhelming or too much at first, I'd rather you do less and start getting in the habit of doing something every day and at least learning one or two solid things 
than being too stressed about, oh, I've got to do this section and then I've got to do another hour. I don't have time to do that today, so I'm not going to study at all. Um, I want you to set a goal that's easy enough that you start doing it every day because there's so much power in consistency. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm very, I, I'm inclined to like this advice because most people just don't review enough. But yeah, that would be a problem if people got scared off of doing time sections because they thought they didn't have the hour to review. I'm happy to give it a tie. Uh, I think most people just, most people can probably take it to heart though. Yeah. That, you know, it's closer to an hour than five minutes. It is. Right. Five minutes is going to be enough to review one question. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'll have tutoring sessions sometimes where I'll take 20 minutes with one question with a student. Absolutely. That happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Sure. Happens all the, all the time. Uh, Maybe even longer than 20 minutes to just make sure that you're really getting there where you actually understand it. And that's where the learning comes from. So if you're not doing that part of it, then you're just spinning your wheels, you know, practice section after practice section without learning anything is not the way to go. Yeah. Well, it's not uncommon for me to be talking to someone and they say, oh, um, I think the flaw here is that this is a correlation causation thing. (laughs) And it's like, okay, um, why do you think it's correlation to causation? Or they don't even say correlation to causation, which would reflect some understanding of that flaw. They just say it's a correlation causation thing. And then I say, okay, why do you think that? And then they try to unpack it a little bit. And I'm like, okay, first of all, what does it mean that things are correlated? Well, that means that two things happen together, or at least two things. And uh, what are the two things that you're talking about? And they're struggling to identify those two things. And eventually it's like, look, there's no correlation causation here, but we could just move on and say this argument's not dealing with correlation causation, but clearly you don't understand that. And that's a concept that's tested quite frequently. So let's take 10, 15, 20 minutes to unpack that. And um, I think a lot of times people feel this like urgency, like, oh, well, this question doesn't have to deal with that. And now if I'm going to go off and start worrying about that, then I'm going to waste all this time. But I'm like, look, you unpack that concept. That's going to help you understand in part why you got this question wrong because you started somehow thinking that this was a correlation to causation flaw. And it's going to help you with all other future questions that are related to this. So yes, we may spend 20, 30 minutes on this one question, but now you walk away and five more questions in the section make more sense to you. You're a better thinker. You have a better understanding of exactly what these concepts are. And so in that sense, like you're saying, taking this to heart makes sense. I mean, people just aren't willing to put as much time into unpacking a question as they could or should. Yeah. And you got to think about it like a lawyer, you know, lawyers just, they're going to take all the time they need in order to sort it out. Mm -hmm. They got to figure this out. They got to do the work, got to like solve the solve the issue here, figure, figure out what's going on. Not just continue doing the same stupid things over and over. Yeah. But like learn from it so that we can just do it accurately. Yeah. And if you're overwhelmed by the number of questions that you got wrong, because you got 10 or 12 or 15 wrong, you don't need to learn them all. Just learn two or three of those questions really well inside and out. And then 
come back at this again the next day and either continue reviewing that section or go to another section that just unlocks so much of the future test. I mean, how many people do we have that come to us and they're like, I've been studying for six months. I've done all the modern tests and my score just isn't changing. I'm really unhappy, but I need to work on my accuracy and timing. It's like, um, (laughs) you're not, you're not studying effectively. You're just skimming over the surface. Yep. I get that all the time. I get, I, I, I mean, I know that people are putting in the time. They are putting in a lot of work, but they're just putting in the wrong work. Yeah. And they just keep asking me, why aren't my scores going up? And it's like, well, because I've told you, you have to ask me a substantive question. Mm-hmm. You have to tell me what it is that you don't understand. Like point to a question and say, I missed this one. I picked this. Why is that the answer? Why is this not? The, what's going on? Yeah. You know, like tell me, you have to say what you don't understand. It's just not enough to say my scores are, I'm on a plateau. My scores haven't improved. I've done 20 practice tests. It's like, yeah, I know you haven't asked me a substantive question about something you don't get. <laughs> that's what your teacher wants. That's like how your that's how your teacher is going to help you learn. Have you ever like noticed that sometimes well, this is for me, at least sometimes I'll end a tutoring session. And I think that the person might be a little disappointed because they were hoping for some like grand tip that would make the test so much easier. It's like we dig into these questions and it's like, Oh, you don't understand necessary and sufficient. And let's break that down and help you understand that. And then it's like, Oh, you're not understanding correlation and causation. So let's break that down and understand that. And then they walk away with this, a more solid understanding of those concepts, but they were hoping for something even bigger, just like, Oh, um, you need to like, I, I don't even know. Sometimes it's like, they want this like general tip of like, go faster in like easy questions or go slower in questions overall. And then now everything's going to like, suddenly their score is going to go up or something. I mean, this doesn't happen very often, but sometimes I get the sense that people, they want it to be easy or they want there to be some secret insight that's, that is not just, hey, this is how to understand these actual logical concepts. Yeah. And it just, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, my response to that is like, if there were magic tips, I would have put them in my t- little tiny primer book introducing the LSAT. Yeah. I mean, there's actually a lot of that stuff is in that little book. <laughs> like, yeah. There's a lot there that's really important and really valuable. And maybe you should go back and reread that book. But, uh, you know, otherwise, I'm not, the, the, it's not like the answer is always D. Mm-hmm. And it's not like if you see the word sum, that's the answer. Yeah. 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 And, you know, like, it's not, if it were that easy, then I would tell you it's that easy. I'm not going to bullshit you. It's, it's easier than you think in a way though, because you just have to actually understand what you're doing. You just Mm -hmm. have to read and understand stuff. And, but, but you do have to like sink your teeth into it and, and really win that battle of will and actually commit to understanding what you're reading. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like we're covering ground. We've covered a million times before, but take longer to review your mistakes and really make sure you understand. And if you're not sure, if you understand, bring it to your teacher and say, Hey, can I talk through this with you? Can I explain to you what I'm thinking here? Yeah. You know, I got a, I got an email, um, 
from a student in my LA class right now and recently, and she basically just wrote, I mean, it was like a 5,000 word email where she wrote her thoughts about a bunch of questions that she had missed and how she understands them now. Hmm. And she just wanted to run it by me. Hmm. And it was kind of a lot, but as I was, as I was skimming through it, I mean, I read it pretty quickly, but as I was skimming through it, I could tell that she had done the work. She had like, well, here's what I missed. And now that I look at it again, I see this and that. And when I look at the correct answer, the one I didn't pick, I see this and that. And I understand why I made this mistake. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is perfect. <laughs> like you're, that's like the, that's like the master top level student, yeah. you know, who's, who's she's, she's realized that she can sort these out herself and she's just like jotting down all of her thought process and then wants to show it to me to get my, you know, stamp of approval or comments or whatever. I wrote back and I was just like, Hey, you are thinking about the test on an extremely high level. This is awesome. Like you're going to kill it. Yeah. That's what we're looking for, you know, students who can turn, you have to turn yourself into that kind of self, self teacher, self learner. Yeah. But the way you get there first is by asking questions. I'm, I'm always amazed people apologize for asking questions. I'm sorry for bothering you. I'm sorry to email you. Yeah. People are like, I'm sorry to email you on the weekend. I'm like, I don't care. What? If I cared about the weekend, I wouldn't check my email on the weekend. Yeah. But people are like very skittish about asking questions. And, um, I always say it, but I mean, that, that's the only thing I want. I want you to show up and ask questions, like, yeah. do homework <laughs> and ask questions. Yeah. The more specific, favorite, the better. Yeah. My favorite student is the one who shows up at class and before we're like even getting class going, they're like, Hey, can we, can we talk about a logical reasoning question mm -hmm. or Hey, can we talk about this game? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, we can. Absolutely. Let me see it. You know, now I'm drawn on the whiteboard, like doing the game for them and for who, anybody else who's, who, who's interested, mm -hmm. but do the work, ask questions. Um, okay. I want to get into, uh, reading comprehension question strategy. Yeah. Fundamental. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Where do we start? All right. So you finished reading the passage. You should know what the main point of the passage is. If you don't stop and scan back over the passage to remind yourself of what was, uh, what was discussed and get... That's a, that's a disaster already, by the way. What? <laughs> Finishing the passage and like not knowing what the main point was Yeah, is just that you can't... You shouldn't be in that position. You shouldn't... You, there's no way you should be finishing up the third paragraph or fourth paragraph or whatever going, hmm, yeah, I don't know what they want. Yeah. Um, I think you should have been making predictions about that all the way through, right? You should have been making a prediction and then revising that prediction, making a prediction, revising. I agree. I think that, um, sometimes maybe you've made those predictions and I don't know. Yeah, I guess. So that's my, so my solution for when that fails to happen is to say to people, look, um, if you were paying enough attention, then you should remember what was being said as you scan back over it. So this is a fallback. I mean, the alternative is to reread the entire passage, but sometimes this is enough to 
force people to say, oh, okay, I remember what they were saying about the critics at the beginning. Here's what they were saying in the second paragraph. Okay. And it might help them pull together the pieces that they were failing to pull together as they were going through it. But the idea here is that if you are in that position, you need to figure out what that main point is. You got to, you got to rectify it there. And yeah, you, you do. You also have to not get yourself in that position in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I I mean, I want to challenge people on that, that when you get done reading line 60 or whatever it is, when you get to that final period at the end of line 60, I believe that I should be able to take your booklet away from you and say, okay, what do they want? Mm-hmm. And you should be able to tell me what they want. Yeah. Cause if you can't, then what were you doing? It, this, it's called reading comprehension. You're supposed to comprehend it. Mm-hmm. You, if, if I take it away from you and you're like, I got nothing, you know, I'd, well, okay, then you, you need to read it more carefully in the first place so that you can get the point of it. Yeah. All right. I now, think really quick here <laughs> to comment on that. I think that likely what's happening is that um, there's, there's two goals, right? There's, re, there's understanding and comprehending and translating a lot of times what you're reading as you go. And if you're not doing that second step of predicting, then... I think what's happening is people are reading, they're getting what's being told them in the moment, and then they're moving on too quickly and not taking time to think about how what they're reading now fits into what they've already read, right? Like, except for the first sentence, all the subsequent sentences are saying something in the context of ideas that have already been expressed. And so I often find myself stopping and saying, Okay, and often even recapping kind of what has been said already. Like, we were saying that they don't like this theory, and now this person is giving me someone else's opinion who does like this theory. Okay, got it. And then I keep going. People have huge reservations with stopping and getting oriented, right? But if I ever feel like I'm losing my orientation, then I'm going to stop and quickly kind of recap where we've been and how I think that what I'm reading now fits into that narrative so that it all flows like a short logical reasoning argument. Yeah. And I think one hint is, you know, you're not going to be reading out loud um, during the test, but you you can like read it out loud to yourself in your head, if that makes any sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're hearing your voice as you read. Yep. And, when I catch myself where the voice, you know how the vo- the voice will sometimes turn into monotone mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's not like any feeling like you're not really hitting the punctuation. You're not really hitting the, the changes in, in tone or the change in direction. Mm-hmm. You're not like, you're just not, you're not selling it anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, you just have, that's where the stop, you just have to stop. Mm-hmm. and probably reread the last sentence or, or whatever to get that like voice back where yeah. you're actually engaged. I mean, when I, this happens, you know, in mini in miniature on logical reasoning questions mm-hmm. where I'll be reading it, let's say in class. And if I just kind of lose focus for a second, next thing you know, I'm like, bah, 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 bah. like I'm reading yeah. the words, but it's clear that there's no meaning mm. when I have students read the passages or, 
you know, logical reasoning or reading comprehension. If I have a student read it, it's super common that they go into that monotone voice where they're just like really, and they're reading it really quickly, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like words, 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 period. Yeah. Um, and they got, it's just clear that they've got nothing. Yeah. Like they said all the words, they have none of the meaning. And that's where you, you can't afford, boy, on the reading comp, you can't afford to do that. It's 60 lines. If you do that for the first 30 lines and you got nothing, that's just a complete waste of time. Yeah. That's And so you have mm. to, so you just have to go slower in the first place, right? You have to go slower. You have to be engaged as you're saying, and you have to grapple. You have to grapple with this stuff and try to understand how, uh, what has been said relates to what you're reading now. I mean, the, the other night I did a passage from test a, um, haven't done test a ever in class before. And the first sentence was talking about, um, non-traditional black women filmmakers. And then, and then the passage went on for like half the passage was talking about another group of people. And I'm sitting there going, okay, 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 like, how does this relate to your first sentence? Is that just like some random thought? And then finally, they tie it back together. And it's like, oh, okay. And it's satisfying, right? It's like, I'm constantly thinking, like, what are you saying to me now? And how does that relate to what you initially said? And then because I have that question in my mind, when the author says the answer, I'm like, oh, this is how it all connects. That answer just screams at me, right? And other people are just kind of like, it's like that thought was in their head about the non-traditional black women filmmakers, and then it's gone, and now they're just focused on what they're reading right now. And then when they start talking about them again, it's just like, okay, new idea. (laughs) And yeah, you don't have any sense of the structure. I think you have to be, for me, it's about being skeptical, right? Mm -hmm. I. I'm not actually disagreeing with the speaker, but I'm, I just kind of play like I am Mm. where I'll read the first couple sentences. And if I, if it feels like they're getting to a conclusion or if it feels like they're getting to their, their attitude, you know, if they take a position at all, Mm -hmm. uh, or if someone who is being described in the passage takes a position, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If critics are criticizing Wynton Marsalis or whatever. Yeah okay, well, I want to know why they are. And I'm, I'm going to kind of put a chip on my shoulder against those, you know, draw, draw a line in the sand with these, looking at these critics, like Mm -hmm. what, where's your, where's your evidence? Let's hear, let's hear what you got against my guy, went Marsalis, you know? And it's like, you just play a silly little game and I think it just, it, it helps you to just actually follow along with what's, what's being said. If you're just like, oh, okay, they say this, and then these other people say that, and then, okay, you know, then the next thing, you're just not, I don't know, it's just harder to remember what you're doing because you're not, I don't know, getting in there, like taking a position. I like the, I like grappling. That's a really good one, Ben. I mean, that's, that's what we want. Yeah. We want that on the logical reasoning and the reading comp. Yeah. Okay. So we get done with the passage. We hopefully have an idea what the main point is. If not, we might have to skim a little bit back through the passage to make sure we have the main point because the first question is almost always going to ask us what the main point was. Yeah. I mean, it almost always is that. And even if it's not, 
it's just it's a grounding force, right? It now gets you oriented um, for all those questions, right? Really. Okay, so then you look at the main point question, and now it says which one following most accurately describes the main point of the passage or something like that. You want to predict an answer for almost all these questions, and you've actually already done that for the main point question, so then you just go into the answer choices. The two thoughts that I have as I go through the answer choices in a main point question is that anything that is inaccurate is immediately wrong, and I won't read the entire answer choice as soon as I encounter something that is inconsistent uh, with the passage. And some of these answers are probably going to be accurate, but too narrow. So there'll be some random fact. They may even be a verbatim quote from the passage, but it's like, okay, yeah, but that's not the main point. That's just a premise or an idea that was expressed on the way to the main point. So that is wrong. Uh, Some answers can be too broad, but that's less common than answer choices that are too narrow in my experience. Yeah, totally. Well, one, another way to think about that, I think is that when you make that prediction of the main point, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's kind of comes down to like a little kernel, the central nucleus of it Mm -hmm. that has to be in the correct answer. Mm -hmm. Just has to be. What does the author want? Well, the author wanted to tell us about the unintended consequences of Wynton Marsalis's neo-traditionalism. Mm-hmm. That's that. That's it. You know, <laughs> like it, it, it. When you see an answer that just says something about like, it just that's part of the argument. Wynton Marsalis inspired a you know renewed interest in traditional jazz. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that was, that was in there. That was definitely part of the story, but where's the unintended consequences of people getting interested in this traditional jazz. And then the record companies saying, all right, well, fuck it. We'll just reprint all this old jazz that we already own. Yeah. (laughs) That was the point. Yeah. And so what I'm going, well, I'm, I'm definitely stopping covering up the answer choices and making a prediction. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when I go into those answer choices, yes, anything that misdescribes the argument is out for Mm -hmm. sure, because it's a must be true question. First main conclusion questions are must be true questions top down. Yep. And I'm also though, I'm just insisting on finding that, that kernel of the main idea has to be there somewhere. Mm hmm. And so you, what you're what you're calling too narrow, mm-hmm. I'm calling just doesn't have the goods. You know, it's just like that that big idea is not there. Yeah, yeah. When people are tempted by answer choices that are too narrow or don't have the goods, I love asking them like, okay, so step back, look away from the passage, look into the sky, whatever you want to do. Do you feel like the author sat down and wrote this passage to tell you that? And almost universally, people are like, yeah, okay, well, that's that's unexciting. That's not what the author was trying to tell me. The author was trying to tell me more than this. Right. And although this was said, and sometimes verbatim, so we can't dispute the accuracy of this at all. I mean, people love doing that. They're like, well, look, 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 line 13. 
it says this exactly. And I'm like, yeah, amen. But that's what the author wanted you to walk away with. Like if you, if you knew nothing else from this passage, that's the, that's it. Not enough. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go back to the law firm where I'm your boss and I've asked you to read this document. You're really going to come here and tell me that that's what they wanted this narrow piece of their argument, like you think that's the purpose of the passage. Yeah. Um, you're fired. Like just no. <laughs> where's the big idea. Where's the thing that they're trying to sell. Yeah. You have to be able to find that. Um, we could talk for a while. I think about the main point question, Ben, um, when people are too passive on the main point question, if they get into the answer choices too quickly, they get themselves into a world of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, for one, it's very time consuming. Those answer choices are long, yeah. right? The, yeah. the main point question can take up a, a whole column all by itself sometimes mm-hmm. where each of the five answer choices is five or six lines. And so now if you're passive and you're, and you're really engaging fully with each of those answer choices, like hoping that it's the answer, mm-hmm. you're going to end up, spending a shit ton of time to parse those five answer choices. But there's another even worse problem, which is some of those answer choices are actually going to misdescribe the passage. Mm -hmm. And if you give them too much respect, they can start to change your understanding of the passage where if you miss that question, especially if you pick something that wasn't actually supported by the passage, something that was like different from the passage. Yeah. Now you're vouching for a main idea that was not the main idea of the passage. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're walking away from that question with now a tweaked understanding, a misunderstanding of the passage because you got yourself in the weeds with the answer choices. Yeah. And if you do that, then you end up missing a whole bunch more questions. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, some of the most challenging correct answers are the ones that are partially incomplete. Like they, they, they hit on one core idea, but not the other. And when that happens, I'm always <laughs> saying in class, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like my prediction had two elements and this answer choice only touches on one of them. I would prefer a better answer, but Every time you've got to tell me what you ended up choosing. And when we look at that, it's, it's, it's going to be objectively worse. So either it is more narrow or in most cases, I think what happens here is that someone overlooks one word. One word can kill an answer choice. Uh, the fact that everything else about that answer choice is great does not save it. And so because inaccuracy is a greater sin than incompleteness, that incomplete answer, as long as it's entirely accurate, is going to end up being better. Okay. Yeah, I like that. One word will frequently make an answer choice wrong. So you're vouching for every word in that answer choice when you pick it. Mm-hmm. These are these are must-be-true questions first. Yeah. What else do we want to say about reading comp question types. Okay. I would say that, um, most of them, almost all of them are top down questions. So they're asking you, Hey, given what was said, what must be true, or please describe what happened or the role or the primary function or purpose of this paragraph or this line. 
Um, all these things are top down. So as you go through these answer choices, do you, you not only want to predict loosely what your, uh, what you think the answer is, you want to go through and make sure that you're picking the most boring, um, <laughs> weak answer that there is. Now, not starting with that, right? We're we're not like just going question strength first. No, we're not. But I do keep that in mind as I go into the answer choice. Like, I, I guess I am primarily focused on my prediction, but I am also going to be uh, hypersensitive to answers that are not that are going outside of that. Either going too strong. Um, that doesn't mean that it's per se wrong, but it is going to be something that I focus on. I think a lot of times focus is helpful in the sense that it's like, um, I'm debating between these two answer choices. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, what do you think about the word always? And sometimes people are like, Hmm. Oh yeah. That's a problem. Sometimes they're like, yeah, that's concerning. And they look back at the passage like, well, it did say inevitably. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. It's still correct. But it's certainly a point of vulnerability. So right. it's a good place to start if you're debating between two answers. Yeah. And, and even if you haven't gotten all the way to narrowing it down to two, you know, I, um, when I go through, when I start reading a, I'm expecting a to be wrong, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for reasons why it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And when it starts with every time I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, I'm, that doesn't mean it's wrong. That's it right. just means, yeah. It's just like, that's a high bar. That's a tough thing to prove. Mm -hmm. So when I start reading what comes after the every time or always or never or whatever, you know, the absolute Mm -hmm. modifier there, when I, when I start reading what's after that, I'm like, okay, did it say that in the passage? Did it really say Mm -hmm. always this? And, and then I frequently will be able to say, no, it did not. It gave one example of that. Goodbye. And well, and just dismiss that answer choice before I even read the rest of it, right? I, I already know if I know it's wrong, I do not need to read the rest of it. I think that's really important. Absolutely. And I, I would say that what you're describing here is this this balance, right? It's we're going into these answer choices aware of the vulnerability of strongly worded answers, or in specific, or specifically, we're we're aware of how vulnerable strong words like always, only, never, usually, most, those kind of words can make an answer choice. That, that's, that's where the answer choice is likely to be vulnerable. But we're not dismissing the answer choice solely on the basis of that word, which is where someone goes too far, right? You're, you're not going far enough if you don't think about that stuff at all, because that can just n- annihilate answer choices left and right. You know, when those answer choices say primarily, and I'm thinking to myself, primarily? Wait, wait, hold on. Let me think about that for half a second. No, that wasn't the primary thing. And I confidently know that that answer choice is wrong, whereas someone else is holding that answer open for debate because they're not focusing on that word. But the extreme, if you go too far with this, you start reading answer choices. And like you're saying, you just look at that word and you don't consider the rest of the answer. And it's like, uh, that's a vulnerability, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily flawed. If that were the case, then we would just say to everyone, avoid all these words um, and the test will be easy for you. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, you can save yourself from that error by 
the answer you are going to pick, you do have to vouch for every single word in the entire answer choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even if you had dismissed something too hastily, you still shouldn't miss the question because you shouldn't pick that wrong answer. And so people need to be more critical. I think they need to be more willing to let go of wrong answers quicker. Mm-hmm. But they also need to take a moment longer with the answer that they're going to pick and just be sure that it's really supported by the passage, like every single word of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, an inter- that's a fine balance there, right? But, I mean, that's how you get through the, the answer choices quickly without getting distracted is that you just expect them to be wrong and are quist- quick to dismiss them. Mm-hmm. But before you pick an answer, you have to be sure it's right. And that means the entire answer choice, every single word. Yeah, so what what you're saying here is that you may be quick to dismiss A and B and C for whatever reason. Um, But if you get down to E and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've just dismissed A, B, C, D, A, B, C, and D. It doesn't mean that you should now have a more favorable opinion of E. You should read that just as dismissively. And if you don't love every word in that answer choice, then you have to accept the fact that now you're going to dismiss that as well and go back and maybe you could start at A, but you could also, there may be answers that you, as you were dismissing them, you dismiss them less quickly and less confidently, right? There are certainly cases where you're like, no way in hell, right? We're not talking about Santa Claus's cookies here. Um, right. And so I'm not going to go back to A, but I did kind of pause on B and ultimately decided to get rid of it because of the every, but let me look at that again and maybe even look back at the passage and say, oh, they did say each student in the class and each is everyone. So um, went a little too fast there. But you saved yourself because you weren't um, accepting of a bad answer. You should be dismissing all five answer choices on the logical reasoning and the reading comprehension pretty frequently. I mean, I I dismiss all five much more often than I narrow it down to two. Hmm. I, I just I when I when I see people narrowing it down, if they're always narrowing it down to two. When I hear the, oh, I narrow it down, I always narrow it down to a 50-50 and miss it. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, one, no, you don't. You're just not reviewing the ones you got right. But two, you if you're narrowing it down a lot, on the one hand, it's good that you're getting rid of like the real bad answers. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's bad because you're just giving too much respect to these answer choices. There aren't nearly as many second best answers as you might think. That is true. And so I just... I don't love it. I mean, and especially when people are like, well, I narrowed it down to A and B and D. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just, uh-uh. <laughs> that's, that's way too passive. You can't, there are not three contenders. Yeah. There just can't be. You, you've got you've to be more sure what you're looking for and quicker to dismiss wrong answers. And if that means you dismiss all five, fine. But that's, just think about all the times you're going to save yourself the back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between two answers. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and you're going to save yourself from engaging so deeply with wrong answers by just being willing to dismiss answers more quickly. Yeah. Um, okay. Should we get into these different question types? Yeah, let's do it. So Mm -hmm. I guess these are things that emailers have uh, mentioned that they're struggling with. So this should be good. I'd say let's start with inference questions because I feel like they are the most frequent by far. Sure. That's where you're supposed to read between the lines, right? And speculate <laughs> about what the author would. Yep, just got that last night. What's an inference? Uh, it's an inference is something that uh, wasn't said but is is assumed. It's, yeah, I wouldn't even say that. Nope. I would just say something that must be true. Something that must be true. And again, this is where you get back to please favor the most boring, most obvious answer. Um, must be yeah. true. Wait. Mm-hmm. If I say um, San Francisco is in California and California is in the U.S., which one of the following can be inferred from that statement? Mm -hmm. San Francisco is in the U.S.? Yeah. But, I mean, that's what they fucking said. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not like you're making anything up. Yeah. That's That's really not reading between the lines. That's just, like, what it says. I mean... So technically you're combining two separate claims. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) But still the point is it feels boring and obvious. Yeah. Like that's just what it said basically. Yeah. Mm. You're putting the pieces together, but you're not like speculating. Yeah. It's just must be true. Yeah. So it can be inferred means it must be true that. Yeah, and inference, by the way, is just a valid conclusion. It is something that you could logically conclude on the basis of a claim or multiple claims. Now, the passages in these reading comp sections obviously can include multiple claims, um, typically around 15 sentences. So um, an inference may require you to combine two or more of those sentences together, but at the end of the day, you are going to feel as if that answer choice were explicitly stated or very, very close. It's not going to be new. What about when it says it can be inferred from the passage that the author would most likely agree that? Now, aren't I supposed to be, you know, it says what the author would most likely agree. So aren't I supposed to be like putting, you know, getting inside the author's head <laughs> and like predicting the next step? So to be fair, you do have a little wiggle room there, but not as much as most people think. It's either going to restate something that the author said or restate something so close and so obviously uh, true, given what the author has already said, that it's going to feel like you're just quoting the author from the passage. Well, I mean, what I like to point out about that question stem there's words the the three words in the middle that people tend to ignore which are from the passage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it can be inferred basically just means must be true yeah from the passage that the author would most likely agree yeah in other words it says in the passage that the author believes this or the author says this in the passage because we're not supposed to be inferring it from the ether. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to be inferring it from our own outside you know, knowledge or speculation about what the author would agree with. 
Instead, we're supposed to be inferring from the passage, from the words on the page. In other words, there's evidentiary support in the passage for this idea. Yeah. And that, and so it's just, they're testing your reading comprehension. They just want to know if you understood what it said on the page. Yeah. They're not testing your ability to speculate and make up what the author is going to say next. They, they want you to, they want to know if you know what the author already said. Yeah. So these are must be true questions. And these are like, it's how many of the questions on reading comp are must be true is half more than more half. More than half. Yeah. Slightly more than half. And well, it depends okay. on how you define must be true. I mean, if you're strictly talking about must be true, like what can be inferred or what is most strongly supported by the passage, that's probably going to be around 60% or so. If you're looking at, if you go ahead and include questions like, what is the primary purpose of that line or the paragraph or things like that, which are other types of top-down questions, then you're looking at 80 to 90% of reading comp. Yeah, because these other ones that people are curious about, these role questions and these meaning questions, those are just in the must-be-true-ish family anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Those are still just top-down. We're we're looking for stuff that we can support uh, from the passage. Yep. I mean, there are okay. the, there is the occasional, you know, which one five two would most weaken or strengthen the author's contention in the third paragraph. The biggest, so that's a bottom up question. It's rare. I usually only see one per section, and um, they tend to be hard because people don't take the time to identify what they're strengthening or weakening. But if you yeah, do that, totally, then it becomes a lot easier. People miss those all the time. Oh, I just can't do these where where it asks me to undermine. And I'm like, okay, well, what are we being asked to undermine? And they're like, uh, the the author's (laughs) position, the author's, what is the author's position in the third paragraph? Like go find it. Right. The way, the way you do that question is you go back to, if you don't remember, Mm -hmm. you go back to the passage and you reread the author's position in that part of the passage and then you say, oh, well, the author believed this. Okay, so how would I weaken that idea? And then the right answer should just jump out at you. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, so we have role questions and meaning questions. I guess I would start with role questions and say that when the question asks you the primary purpose, they can either ask you the primary purpose of the passage, a paragraph, or a specific line, or sometimes word. For all of these, I am making a loose prediction. Uh, If it's asking about the passage, I'm just stepping back and saying to myself, why did the author sit down and write this? Were they trying to inform me of something or persuade me to believe something? I think that all the passages can fall into one of those two categories. And then the next question would be like, what's the primary purpose of that paragraph? I often have to look back, scan the paragraph and remind myself, oh, what was discussed here? But as soon as I remember, oh yeah, this is where they were giving evidence. then I think to myself, was it giving evidence for something that had already been said? Or was it giving evidence for something that was about to be said? I try to fit that paragraph into the passage as a whole and treat it like a role question in logical reasoning where I'm saying to myself, ah, the role of this paragraph is to support or to provide background information. But bottom line here is I'm making a prediction. And then finally, um, when they ask for the primary purpose of mentioning, you know, uh, dryers in line 17, I'm often going back, sometimes I remember, but sometimes I'm going back and I'm looking at that sentence and I'm saying, okay, 
Why did this author mention the dryers? Oh, they did that to illustrate a claim that they had said earlier. Or no, they were doing this to explain an opposing viewpoint or something. Like, why was this mentioned? Again, I am predicting and then going into the answers and looking for an answer that most closely matches that description. Yep, totally. I think predicting generally on the LSAT is just the magic formula. You know, how do I go faster? How do I become more accurate? Well, you got to start telling them what the answer is. Yeah. You got to start predicting. (laughs) Well, and it slows people down at first because when you're not doing that, you're not good at it. And when you're not good at it, you're sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know. (laughs) And so then what you want is you want someone to throw out little clues to you, which is what the answer choices seem to do on some level. Like, oh, could it be this? And you're like, hmm, could it be that? I hadn't thought about that. Um, That's why people in general prefer multiple choice because they can like be given an option and decide whether or not they like it. The problem is, like you were saying earlier, is that people get tossed around. You start to then uh, opening your mind to this idea that maybe that is the role as opposed to deciding yourself and then going in and finding the answer that does that. So it's going to slow you down to some degree at first, but then you're going to develop that skill and you're going to get better at it and you're going to get more accurate and you're ultimately going to get faster. It would be really interesting, Ben, to take an LSAT and remove the answer choices and like put lines, blank lines and have people write answers. Hmm. Yeah. That would be a real test of your understanding. But I mean, you know, it will work better for some questions than for others, but for many of the questions, like that's just how you do it. If this is a sufficient assumption question, I don't give a shit what the answer choices say. Yeah, likewise. Uh, like, uh, you know, or main point question, I, I don't care. I'm going to tell you what the answer is. Yeah. And so people need to get into that mindset on the LR for sure, but also on the reading comprehension. I mean, it's, it's, it frequently the, the prediction is only like a rough, you know, yes or no, positive or negative. Mm hmm. Yeah. Like when the author said this, what was their purpose? Oh, well, they were trying to sell me on this idea. Yeah. Or when the author said this, oh, yeah, that's not, that wasn't actually what the author believed. The author was saying that because they were going to shoot it down. Yeah. Okay. Well, thumbs up or thumbs down, you know? And, and that's like, it's, it's kind of scary how often that turns out to be enough to answer the question. It's just like, well, I knew that it was something positive and there's only one positive answer choice. Yeah. <laughs> There's two negative ones and two ambivalent ones and one positive. And like, no, the author was trying to sell us this idea. Yeah. Or there's two positive ones, but that one's like way over the top. So this is it done. Um, how do we do these, uh, meaning questions? Like when it says the phrase word phrase or word X primarily refers to what? So for those questions, I tend to go back and I just like to reread the sentence unless I happen to remember them using that particular word. But I reread the sentence and I say to myself, okay, well, what other, (laughs) what is the feeling that the person was trying to convey with this word? And you can come up with a bunch of other words that mean the same thing, but you are doing it in the context of that sentence. So many people, I think, look, I don't know if it's laziness or whatnot, but they look at that word in isolation. And of course, any word in isolation is going to have multiple definitions, which is why when you look up a word on the, uh, in the dictionary, 
it's like, okay, here are the four definitions. Well, you can't decide which definition is being used in this sentence without looking at the sentence because the sentence is going to constrain the possible interpretations of that word. So I go back, I replace that word with usually plain, more plain words, plain English, and I say, okay, I get what you were trying to say here. And then I go, then I start going through the answer choices and look for the word that is closest to that word that I've come up with. Yeah, so, sounds good. I mean, frequently I feel like I can predict those answers too. Um, I'm, I'm remembering a question. Do you remember the one that was a, it was, I think comparative reading and it was about whether judges, um, should be able to do independent research. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And there, one of the speakers, I can't remember which one it was, was like sort of rhapsodizing about how awesome trials are for finding the truth. Mm, mm-hmm. And then that passage has a question where it's asking you why did, what did the author mean? Or you know what I would think it was, was comparing a word that, that one author used to a word that another author used or something like that. Yeah. Do you remember the one? It was about crucible. It was crucible and engine. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, in a way that was kind of like a hidden main point question because when I saw the author saying that the the trial system is a crucible by which truth gets found, yeah, or when I see them saying that this was the greatest and en- greatest truth finding engine man has ever you know what whatever it was like those because I'm so hungry for the author's main point when i when I saw those words in the passage, I was like, damn that's a strong, like they're just, they really love this. Mm -hmm. They think that the, they think that trials are the shit for finding the truth. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out later they're like, Hey, when the author said crucible, what did they mean? And then I notice engine is one of the answer choices, or maybe it was the other way around. But the point is I knew that they were like going off on how awesome the trial system is for finding the truth. And I remembered that they had used both of those words to mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would be your chances of getting that right? If you had never read the passages (laughs) or if you hadn't read the passages very closely, crucible and engine. (laughs) Yeah. Those do not mean the same thing. Like no one would ever, you wouldn't, if you'd compared two dictionary definitions for crucible and engine, you might be able to find two definitions that, that are similar, but you would not think of them as being similar at all. Yeah. Um, unless you really read the passage well and, and like got, you just got the like, Oh wow. That is like a really strong statement of the author's opinion about this issue. Yeah. So even these detail questions, you have to stay focused on the main point. Do you agree with that? I agree. And you can't pick answers that go like against the main point. Yeah. I'm, I'm always surprised when people do that. You know, why did the author include this phrase? And then they'll pick an answer. That's like the exact opposite of the author's main point. Yep. Well, no, I don't think they included that phrase with the intention of saying the opposite of their main point (laughs) to hurt their conclusion. (laughs) Yeah. I think sometimes students just forget that they're being tested on their reading comprehension. 
that they're just supposed to be picking answers that indicate that they understood the passage. What basically, right? Yeah. What the author wanted to let you know. Right. Even though it's so weird. Okay. But there are two other question types we should probably talk about. Let's do it. Organization and analogy. Okay. Uh, They tend to be some of the hardest questions in the section. People get these wrong. Organization questions are the ones that are long. They can take up sometimes an entire column. And they have five answer choices that use abstract terms to say, like, the author introduces a theory. The author counters the theory with a set of examples. The author uses the examples to, or no, the author points out a dissimilarity with two of the examples. You know, it's, it's, it's abstract, and so I think people tend to gloss over these answer choices as they're going through them. My advice is to keep in mind what we've been saying, but that is that one word or phrase can kill an answer choice. And so you don't have to read the entire answer choice for all five of these, even though they're very long. And um, you can just start going through and asking yourself, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? And the same principles apply. An incomplete answer is not ideal. We'd like it to be as complete as possible and cover everything in the passage. But inaccuracy is a bigger problem. So as soon as you hit something that does not happen in the passage, you can cross that answer choice out. If an answer choice is incomplete, uh, I would... Well, it depends. I mean, either we can be critical and get rid of it because it's incomplete or keep it open because it's not technically inaccurate and then ultimately end up choose that, choosing that if, if all the others are inaccurate. So bottom line here is I'm asking myself, did this happen? Did this happen for each individual phrase in the yep. answer as opposed to reading the entire answer and then deciding? Well, you can also frequently... Um narrow it down or eliminate more than one answer at once, right? Because I think what you see a lot with those questions is the first two answers and the next three answers will all start with the same phrase. Did you just say the first two and the next three? Yeah, or the other way around. No, no, isn't that, so that's all five, right? No, but I mean different. (laughs) Oh, okay. okay. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. You'll notice the first two and the last three all have the same phrase. Okay, cool. The first two will start with the same phrase, and then the last three will start with a a different Mm -hmm. same phrase. Well, okay, which one is it? I mean, it's one or the other, right? So you immediately can like cut the answers down to half. Excellent. Uh, and then the second phrase might actually like, so say the, say you've decided that it's, Oh no, it is one of these three. Mm-hmm. Can't be those first two. Cause that's the wrong, you know, it didn't start out like that. It started out like this. Yep. And then of those three, two of them might have, you know, the same thing in the second mm-hmm. clause mm-hmm. and you can decide, okay, is the, is it that, or is it the, the, the other one, mm-hmm. right? So you can end up narrowing it down, I think, pretty quickly without necessarily reading the entire answer choice yeah. of, of all five. But, it, but once you get down to one, <laughs> then you do have to like match it up and go, yep, they did this, and then they did this, and then they did that. Yeah. Yep, okay, they did that. Okay, that's, that's my answer. Mm. Um. Okay. Uh, Did you want to talk about the analogy questions before we wrap it up? So analogy questions are going to ask you to find a situation or principle or something that is most analogous to the uh, events or rules or concepts described in some part of the passage. And 
kind of like weaken and strengthen questions where people don't take enough time to figure out what they're weakening and strengthening. People don't figure out <laughs> what they're analogizing to. It's like, okay, so first of all, they're asking us to find something that is most analogous to the situation described in the second paragraph. What's the situation described in the second paragraph? And people are like, uh, that, uh, it's like, that's got to be clear. These questions are hard and you can't go into it with a vague notion of what you're analogizing to. So first go there, then just like parallel reasoning questions in logical reasoning, come up with a loose template of what is happening and then go into the answer choices, trying to match each one to that template. Good. I think other people just don't even understand what an analogy is to begin with. Mm. Um, an analogy is just a comparison. Yep. So it's not the same topic normally. It's almost always a different topic. Like if I start rambling to you about golf, but I'm trying to teach you something about the LSAT, that that can be teaching by analogy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When I say, hey, if I go to the driving range before my round, I sometimes don't hit all the balls in my bucket of of range balls. Cause I want to make sure I end on a good one before I go out to the golf course. So I'll hit one good one and I'll have 10 balls left and I'll just be like, yeah, you know what? That's good. I'll, I'll leave it there and then go to the first tee. Yeah. And if I'm teaching you the idea that, Hey, maybe you should do that with your LSAT scores before you go take the official LSAT, you know, a week before the test, if you have a real good practice score, maybe you should just leave it there. Yeah. And stop scoring yourself. So that's my, I'm analogizing there between golf and, uh, the LSAT. Yeah. So that's, so an analogy is just a, a comparison of, you're trying to find similarities in things that are otherwise dissimilar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. And you're saying you should predict it. Yeah, by you should predict it by going back to well, what's the thing that they're asking me about here? Mm -hmm. What was the thing in the passage? What was happening here? Okay, now I need to find a similar. What are we looking for? A similar pattern, a similar idea, a similar situation. So a different yep. situation, but one that seems <laughs> to <laughs> have similar characteristics or. Um, themes or patterns, a common thread, right? Between different things. Yeah. A, a common thread in different things. So a common that thread be between golf and the LSAT, totally different things, but similar approaches. You got to slow down to learn your swing and so forth. Yeah. We can learn something in this one realm that has application in this other totally different realm. Mm -hmm. That's an, that's what an analogy is. Yeah. Anything else we want to say about uh, question types for reading comprehension before we wrap it up? That's it. Hello there, dear listeners. It's your trusty producer, Adam, here with a segment segue. The guys kicked off today's recording with an interesting interview with Craig Conover, lawyer and actor in Bravo's Southern Charm. They talk about pillow making. They talk about a career in law. They talk about the LSAT. They talk about law school. It's really interesting. But even though the guys mentioned the interview at the beginning of the show, they get so wrapped up in the LSAT fundamental section that they forget to get back around to the interview. And so without further ado, I'm going to drop you in to that interview right now. 
So how are you guys doing today? <laughs> just fine. Just fine. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, Craig, you are a lawyer. You're an actor. You're a pillow maker. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty unique combination. How, how did all that come about? That's true. When you put it like that, it, uh, it's definitely a little different. Well, I, I, uh, I originally out of college, um, decided to go to law school, which, you know, I can tell you guys about later with that whole process with the LSAT, but, um, you know, I ended up going to law school at Charleston school of law. And then around, uh, the beginning of my third year, um, or the, the, basically the summer after my second year, I was working at a good firm. Uh, I was doing well in my classes. And um, I got tied up with uh, the television show Southern Charm on Bravo. And I didn't wasn't sure if I was going to do it for a while. It took me about five months to uh, commit because it's obviously not the normal path you take after going to law school. And... Uh, you know, I talked to my dean about it and a few other people. And at the end of the day, I was like, look, what would I regret more? Not doing it and wondering what if or doing it and having to fix some things uh, down the road. So I decided to do it. And then a few years went by of doing the show. Um, and I was big into uh, gardening and I had a workshop at my house that my ex-girlfriend and I lived in. And when... We decided to split up. I moved in uh, to my new house and I didn't have a garden. You know, I had to leave my garden and uh, left my workshop. And I did have my sewing machine for some reason. And I just needed an outlet for kind of my OCD and short bouts of professionalism. And uh, I was like, I know I've got, I, I know that I've got to know how to make something. And I remembered how to make a pillow from eighth grade home ec class. And after making one, I kind of got hooked on it. And then that was my outlet during my breakup was just creating stuff. And then it kind of turned into a business. And so now I'm an attorney, actor, pillow maker. <laughs> Wait, so one question I have is you said that you were, you finished your second year of law school and then you got, I think you said top... <laughs> tied into the show or like, you know, somehow, um, weaved into the show. How does that happen? I mean, most people who, who are in law school are studying most of their waking hours and then working during the summer and not getting tied into a TV program. What, what led to that? Uh, that's true. Um, that's a very good point. I, uh, Charleston, um, like I'm sure a lot of other college places, is a pretty social town. And, you know, after your first year of law school, you kind of start to figure, you know, stuff out. You know, we had law review in our second, our second year and things that were keeping us busy, but, um, I still, you know, was still a pretty social person, um, while living downtown in Charleston. It's kind of hard not to be. And I started to make new friends that I, you know, Whitney is a guy that was on the show the first few years. He created the program and we all became kind of friends. And his mom had this, you know, huge mansion that we had always wanted to go in and would try and sneak in, like sneak into the pool and college and stuff. And he invited us to hang over there a few times. And then 
as we became friends, I knew he was in town doing a project, but I had no idea that, you know, he was considering me for it. Mm. Um, and then I'm try. it's tough because I'm not sure what I'm like allowed to say and not supposed to say, but basically because of like financial reasons and stuff and me just, you know, not wondering, not wanting to say what if I, for some reason thought I could do it all at the same time, which clearly didn't work out because I then, you know, in the second year of our show, you know, I had to stop working at the law firm because I was too consumed with the TV show. And then, you know, fortunately it didn't affect my schoolwork too much because we would film at that point, the filming wasn't as intense because it was in the beginning, but yeah, I wish I had a better answer for that, but I don't know. I think I just kind of, I never, I, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that I hadn't thought about being on TV or movies before, but I was never going to move to LA and pursue it. So I thought kind of, you know, my path was, I was just going to be a lawyer and you know, that was, that was that. So I think when it came and found me, um, I kind of just went with it. Yeah. So you, you made friends with someone who was in the show and then he invited you onto it and you started doing that and then you left law school. So you had done two years, right? And then you stopped and uh, you still had a year left. And wait, what year was that again? And then you, you went back to law school recently. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I guess it did affect my law school because, um, no, I didn't actually leave. I stayed in it, which was pretty funny feeling walking into class the first time after the show had started to air. But we were a pretty close-knit bunch, so it was okay, and everyone was pretty supportive. But I did actually – I kept a normal schedule in law school and then walked in my graduation um, with my class – the problem was is that I never finished my upper level writing requirement, um, and so I couldn't get my official diploma until I finished that. But our school basically sold in the middle of the night um, to Infowall, and a lot of my professors protested that. Um, and the pro the professor that I had um, sponsoring my paper basically like I didn't finish it in time before. You know, he got involved in that stuff and all of a sudden I was stuck with my school basically didn't exist anymore. I didn't have the, my requirements done and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't take the bar without an actual diploma. So it wasn't for about a year that Infolol finally left because of the great kind of protesting that the school did. And obviously the numbers really started to suffer and all of a sudden I got you know, uh, an invite or like a message saying, Hey man, like, you know, we realized that you never graduated. Like this is pretty silly, but let's figure out a way to fix this. So, um, I finally had a chance to, to write a new paper and, and complete my requirements. So that was kind of how I got stuck. Okay. And then you completed the requirements when I, for some reason I thought that was recent and then it, there had been a long time gap. Yes, that's how it kind of uh, appeared. It basically in 2014 was when I walked and I was supposed to finish. And then in, I think, the beginning of 2016 is when I started work on my thesis. And that took about four months just because there's a structured program that you have to do with the school. You can't just rush it. And then I took my bar, not this February, but last February, I was the first class in South Carolina to take the UBE and, or was I sworn in in February? No, I took, 
Sorry, it's all because it's all right. A, it's it's not a blur, not but yeah, huge. basically. But you, so you did. The, you decided to go back and finish this. I guess my question is: after becoming an actor, uh, why did you decide to go back? Uh two reasons. I mean, one was just to fiz- finish what I started. I mean, it would have been really silly to go to law school and do everything that I did for it, and then not you know, finish. And two, the whole reason I went to law school was, you know, I really enjoy helping people. And this is a silly way to put it, but I like being people's like Superman. Basically it's how I got involved in the orphanage stuff in Haiti and other things I've done is just, I, I like, I I feel like I have the ability to save the day for some people. And I, it really weighs on me when I'm, not doing anything productive or, or kind of in that, in that manner. And so when I was in Haiti, the first time I remember this couple was trying to get their kid, they had adopted a kid, their kids successfully, but because of kind of a lot of political stuff going on, they couldn't get their kids back to the States. And all I could do was recommend um, or suggest attorneys for them to use, you know, I was kind of stuck in, you know, just steering them the right way. But if I had been an attorney, then I could have actually gone to court for him. And, you know, I I wouldn't have had to hand it off to anyone. And just being kind of like limited or or, uh, handcuffed used to drive me crazy. So I just wanted the ability to be able to walk into court and help my friends out or or someone out when they needed to. And that's kind of, uh, that's kind of why I ultimately wanted to finish. Hmm. So are you practicing now? So I'm, I'm a license. So I'm, I, my, my license is active. Um, I kind of in respect with respect to the court, wasn't going to practice for money while being on TV. Just, you know, there's not a lot of precedent in South Carolina for, for, you know, a practicing attorney being on television and I didn't want to scare them too much. I remember now, actually I took the bar two years ago it then took me a year in character and fitness to be sworn in. So I, I actually, that's why it took so long for me to be an attorney. I remember now is because I actually passed the bar a while ago, but then getting sworn in took a while, which is, you know, one of the things that I assumed would probably happen if I went through with this, but sorry, what was the question? I've been, my brain gets all over the place. Just are you practicing? <laughs> oh yeah. So I am not, but I, I hope to, I have a lunch this week with a crisis ministries, which is a, with, which is a, a basically a legal clinic, um, in downtown Charleston that focuses on homeless veterans. And, um, that's a term that I don't really think should be exist. And so hopefully, you know, while we're not filming, uh, which is a decent amount of the year, uh, I can spend my time helping them out and, um, it'll kind of be the best of both worlds. And what do you hope to do with them? Uh, just, uh, I mean, I can just volunteer as a, as an attorney for them. So I feel like it'll be a good way to get, get a solid amount of hours in the courtroom and, you know, they can use all the help, you know, they can get. And fortunately I don't need to practice for money right now. So I would basically, (laughs) I mean, in my perfect world, I'd be working almost full time for them, but for free and just doing pro bono legal work for them. What do those attorneys do for the homeless vets? That's I'm not really sure with this group. Um, that's that's kind of what the point of the meeting is. Um, 
I mean, it's a good question, but I basically had a CLE last week in Myrtle Beach, a continuing legal education class, and I ran into an old professor, and it was her idea, and I said, you know, I would be down to meet, so I'll have to update you guys on that when it happens. Hmm. Uh, so, you, you were you born in uh, Delaware? Is that right? Uh, yes, I'm from the Eastern Shore, of Delaware. Okay, great. So, what what brought you to uh, Charleston? Well, in the back then in Delaware, and I think a lot of northern states, they didn't really teach us about uh, the Civil War that much. They kind of told us that there was a war, and there were it was over slavery, and then we won the war, and then there weren't slaves anymore. And I know that sounds kind of rudimentary, but that's that was pretty much the history we got of, of the South. And so therefore I had never heard of Charleston and a lot of kids went to senior week in ocean city, Maryland. That was by our house. Um, and so my friends and I went down to Myrtle beach and when we got there, which is kind of absurd to think that 18 year olds uh, are allowed to just rent out a house for a weekend. Um, you know, unsupervised looking back at it, you know, there was like 10 kids in the house and it just wasn't really working out. Everyone was arguing. And my buddy that I had grown up with in Delaware, he was a freshman at Charleston and he had come up and he was like, yo man, why don't we just drive like an hour and a half South of my school? Uh, and I said, sure. And after like two days of being in Charleston, I knew I, had, I late applied to the college and got in fortunately. And because I thought I was going to go maybe surf at UNCW. I didn't really know what I was going to do for college. Um, I had always wanted to play baseball, but that didn't work out. And then I kind of was in limbo. And But once I got to Charleston, like I said, within a, within a day or two, I knew this was the place for me. Cool. Um, Nathan, do you have any other questions? Oh, <clears throat> I guess maybe if he wants to talk a little bit about his LSAT journey and um... – yeah, what did you do to prep for the LSAT? How long did you study for? Did you apply to more than uh, just Charleston? Uh, yeah, I actually – so I didn't realize how long the process actually took uh, to you know correctly apply for law schools. And so by the time I had decided to go to law school, it was too late to go – uh, the year after I graduated. So I actually took a year off between college and law school and I went home to my parents and studied and I actually used PowerScore to study. Um, the creator of that actually turned out to be one of my friends here in Charleston, uh, which is pretty bizarre and I didn't know until after I'd taken the LSAT, but I thought PowerScore was amazing. Um, it was the only one I tried, so I can't really comment on on anyone else. And I did apply to a bunch of schools, most um, knock on wood, I got into, but Charleston offered me a pretty substantial scholarship. And I don't know, I knew I wanted to stay in Charleston. And I just, my, my, my choice of schools was, I knew I wasn't going to get a job from my diploma of Charleston, just saying like, you know, you went to a top 20 school, you know, it's obviously not ranked like Charleston's not ranked with those numbers, but our professors I knew were amazing. And so it was kind of like, you know, if you want to be taught by, you know, some of the best and then hopefully get your foot in the door somewhere, that was the school for you. But then when the LSAT came, the day of the LSAT, I was doing really well in my practice scores. And then the day of, I remember walking out knowing it, that 
the section that I did incredible on actually was one of the test sections. And by the time I did the real section, uh, my fatigue got to me. So that was one thing I could have worked on when I was studying was actually sitting down and doing full practice tests. Um, I just, I didn't do that. And so the fatigue actually got to me at the end of the test, but, um, that was kind of, uh, you know, I kind of let it get me down a little bit, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you prepare right and stuff, you're, the schools are going to talk to you. I mean, I, I wasn't applying to, you know, top 20 schools, but, uh, I'm, I mean, I might have, I don't remember. It was a long time ago, but yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't trade my experience for anything. I really, really enjoyed it. But some people, you know, they get stressed out about what other people say about the school they're going to. Um, I did go to a few schools, um, and the kids there told me to not go to the school, whatever I did. And so I didn't go there, but yeah, that was kind of my, my, my journey into it. And I was, uh, Telling Nathan over email, I said, you know, it, if you're, if you like law and legal stuff, like for me, you know, I got wrongly arrested my junior year of college. I had never considered going to law school ever before. And I got wrongly arrested in, in that process of watching, you know, the, the interaction between the solicitor and my attorney and the judge. And it really inspired, I had no idea that's how it worked and I fell in love with it. And I was really excited to go to law school. I was excited to go to class. I, everything I learned, I was pumped about. And that's when law school is fun. But if you're just doing it, you know, cause you don't know what else to do, it, it's probably not going to be a great time cause it's a lot of work. But I mean, I, I kind of miss being in school. I, I really enjoyed it. So that was my very unorthodox um, pathway through law school and to where I'm at now. Are you glad you went just one year after undergrad or do you wish you would have worked a little bit longer before starting law school? I'm glad that I went and I probably would have gone the year after if I could have. I think just from watching my friends, a lot of them did it because they were, they thought they were supposed to, or I don't know. I just feel like you, for me, I, I might've gotten distracted because if I put two years into a job after college, once I got high enough in it or whatnot, it would have been hard for me to reset and just give up all of that, you know, time that I committed to that. For me personally, I, I, I get distracted easily and I think it would have been bad, but I was shocked to find out that, you know, I think I started law school when I was, you know, 24. And I was one of the youngest by far in my class. Most of the people in my class were, you know, around 28 to 30 our first year. And so I was surprised that most of the people had, you know, they had been out of college for a while or gone to business school first or whatnot. Are they practicing now? I would say it's about 50, 50. Um, a lot went, you know, I have a buddy that he came from business school and then working for Boeing um, and then came to law school and then went back to working with Boeing and got a promotion and a pay raise, but he's not in a legal capacity there. Um, a few, two of the girls I know went and got their LLMs afterwards. And now they're working as accountants basically, or consultants, but the 50 that the 50% of people that are practicing, uh, a lot of them are trial journeys now. Um, and they're doing really well. Most in my class went and started their own, their own, uh, firms. Uh, it seemed like, um, a few got 
jobs at big defense firms. So mostly just um, went in and started doing personal injury and stuff. Um, but it, it seems that it worked out. Uh, there was a there was a market for it here, which there is a lot of places, and you know they seem to be happy. A lot of them, you know, already have the you know the common you know jokes about how you know they work too much and stuff. But it seems like a lot of them like it. It's funny because the guys that you least expect to uh, become like the prosecutors and stuff end up becoming the prosecutors. Just like some of the wild girls in college become the teachers, you know, like the elementary school teachers. Um, it's just funny to see where everyone ends up. But how's uh, how's the pillow business? And do you feel like your law degree helps you? Um, it actually fortunately launches uh, on April 1st. So just if we're a few days away after – you know, two to three years of, of wanting to do it. It really helped me in the, in the organizational part and they because I have two partners now. So I got to do, you know, the articles of incorporation and the operating agreement, stuff like that. Instead of having to, to ask, you know, or hire someone else to go over it or do it for me, you know, I was able to do it. So a lot of the legal documents are good and a lot of my trademarks that I've done, but I mean, it doesn't help me with the actual design and sewing, but I just, I don't, I think, I mean, it's expect if you can, if you can go to law school, you know, without having to, you know, in, inherit basically a, a ton of student loans and I would definitely do it. I mean, it's, I thought I learned a ton, especially compared to undergrad and I do end up using it in a lot of my daily life. And I think being an attorney makes me more comfortable in a lot of situations that I run into just in, in business and other things I've done and feeling safer almost that I know the law. And like I said, I like, I don't know, I I like being, you know, a friend to people, you know, (laughs) it's hard, you know, for speeding tickets or something like that. Just small little things to me that I like being able to do, you know, I enjoy. Um, you said you're launching April 1st. Yeah. April 1st, which I think a lot of people think is an April fool's joke, but it's really not. <laughs> if you go to, it's, it's called sewing down South. And, um, we have our, our, uh, our Instagram up. If you, if you look at it, the, you can see like the color palettes and the, in the scheme. And what we did was we basically took the B word, like B I T C H and we replaced it with stitch. And a lot of our sayings are like, you know, basically something funny off that. So like, you know, quit your stitching or something like that. And, um, and we basically realized that there is this, niche market that there wasn't really a cool brand in sewing. Um, and we didn't want to make it based off the show. Really. Um, we wanted to really turn it into a lifestyle brand for, or like a homewares brand. So you could get, you know, your, your grandmother or your aunt or your uncle or brother or whoever, a bag that said something funny, you know, for about sewing, but you know, they'd still like, even if they weren't a fan of mine. So, um, I'm excited just to kind of, you know, I need, I need, stru- I need like structure and stuff every day, or I tend to just like, you know, wander and not get a lot done. So as long as I have tasks and stay busy, that's kind of how I operate the best. So it's probably why law school was fun for me because there was a million assignments all the time, but. So it's sewing down South on Instagram. Yeah. Is that yeah. going to be a website as well? Sewing? do you have a URL for that or no? 
Yeah, so if you go to Sewing Down South now, you can actually type in your email just to uh, to get updates or whatnot. But fortunately, on April 1st, the way we have um, everything set up, you should be able to buy – I think we have – I think we have four pillows, four or five pillows coming out, and then uh, some merchandise, some T-shirts, and some hats that we sourced. And um, it's our hashtag is So Squad. So if you want to be part of our So Squad, then you know that's where you'll you'll go to get um, merchandise. But I, I mean, on a side note, uh, and I didn't mean to keep you guys, but uh, the whole how this all came to is it used to be it was originally flawed and that'll be the name of my my nonprofit that I'm doing and I'm, I have a huge platform for anti bullying and I was I was bullied growing up but fortunately it it basically is why I'm at where I'm at today and like you know I had to self validate in high school and once you self validate it's a pretty great feeling and that's why. I'm able to do this show without losing my mind. I mean, some of my other cast members really struggle with it, but for me, you know, like I said, I, I already dealt with, you know, the meanness and the bullying when I was little. And once you get past that, which it sucks when you're little, uh, everything works out. And, uh, I am, am figuring out a way to go, you know, connect with kids that are, that are being bullied in schools right now. And, and, you know, tell them that like, yeah, it's, you know, just make it, like, make it out of high school and you're going to be just fine. And I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it, it being smart ends up being cool. And like, you know, these kids all end up having like six kids and in prison by like they're 22. Obviously I'm not going to tell them that, but <laughs> that's what, you know, the bullies, it just works out. So with the sewing thing, hopefully, you know, being a male that sews and likes cooking and gardening and stuff, it just, hopefully it becomes a good kind of image to like, just do whatever you like want to do and whatever makes you happy. Like at the end of the day, like don't let someone else, you know, control your life. So that's kind of where it came from. So cool. That seems like a good place to leave it. Probably. Um, do you have <laughs> anything else you want to shout out, Craig? No, I mean, I, uh, appreciate, uh, you guys have me on um, and, uh, you know, congrats on all your success and, um, you know, maybe we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, yeah, Craig. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Bye. All right. We have 1,300 some members these days, Ben. I think it's like 1,350 something okay. in the uh, Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. So that continues to grow. While you're there, give the uh, Thinking LSAT Facebook page a, life, a like. Um, and a life. And a life. <laughs> we're at Thinking LSAT on Instagram. Uh, we're at Thinking LSAT at NFOX and at Olson Benjamin on Twitter. By the way, on Please Instagram, visit. we post a lot of uh, event updates. So if you want to join us for those events, go to Instagram, follow us, and yeah, stay updated yeah. there. And Adam's still doing a kick-ass job on the show notes, and Annalisa's doing a kick-ass job taking those show notes and boiling them down into, like, tips and stuff that she posts out on Instagram. That stuff still is just, like, awesome. That's so, right. We should remind people to sign up for the newsletter at com forward slash blog forward slash newsletter. 
Awful. That's going to change new, soon. Though. New website coming soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Uh, visit strategyprep.com if you want to learn about Ben's courses in DC and his online stuff. Go to foxlsat.com to learn about my classes in Los Angeles and San Francisco and my online stuff. We both do one-on-one tutoring. You can book that via our websites. Go to lsatdemon.com and do a free uh, free trial. Uh, check that out. And I think we'll leave it there. Thanks very much to our guest, Craig Conover. That was show 186. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.